0: Good morning. 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 It is good to be back with you this morning, Bethel. Friends, do you have any idea how many Christian missionaries are serving throughout the world today? The total number of foreign missionaries sent from all the countries of the world, not just the U.S., but all countries, is 450,000 missionaries. However, that figure may be deceiving because it includes missionaries from all branches of Christendom, including Catholics, mainline Protestants, and evangelicals. How many of those missionaries, would you guess, are working among unreached people groups? People groups where the evangelical population is less than 2% only about 3%, or 13,500 missionaries worldwide. Now, the total world population in 2019 is about 7.7 billion people. And according to the World Christian Database from the Center for the Study of Global Christianity, about 2.19 billion are unreached. They have no reliable access to the gospel message, which is about 28.4% of the world population. And if anything, this statistic may be low because the Joshua Project website considers 3.14 billion people unreached which would be 41.1% of the world's population. So imagine the job description for just one of those 13,500 missionaries who are serving among the unreached. The job description might read, you must move to a new country, learn a totally different language and culture, and oh, by the way, you are personally responsible for sharing the gospel with 200,000 people who have never heard it before. In fact, the statistics indicate that each of the foreign missionaries working among Muslims would be responsible for sharing the gospel with an average of 400,000 people each. Now, I've read on the internet that 87% of statistics are made up on the spot. But friends, I am pulling these numbers from the most credible sources that we have. And even if the statistics are not completely accurate, I hope that we can agree that there is no way that the world's current missionary force can ever reach the 7,078 unreached people groups and complete the Great Commission. It is statistically impossible. You might be thinking, okay, I see where Alex is going with this. He's going to pound the pulpit and shout that the global church needs to send out more missionaries. Right? Right? And yes, I do believe that. But here's the thing. Although it may be part of the solution, it will only be a relatively small part. Again, using data from the World Christian Database, current projections suggest that the world population by the year 2050, 31 years from now, Will be 9.8 billion, okay, with 700,000 missionaries, but the number of unreached by that time will be 2.75 billion. Next. Unreached, which will be 28.1% of the population. Can you see a problem here? According to the best statistics and projections we have, the Center for the Study of Global Christianity, which, by the way, is an evangelical organization based out of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, estimates that in 30 years, despite an increase to the world's missionary force, we will make basically zero relative progress. In reaching the unreached. And even if we sent out 100 times the number of foreign missionaries in the next 30 years, I think it would only make a small dent in the unfinished task. Which leads me to the following conclusion Foreign sent missionaries will never complete. The great commission at best they will only be able to accomplish a small fraction of the task so where does this leave us brothers and sisters have statistical challenges killed the great commission not at all no But I wonder if we need to change the way that we think. Back in 1974, more than 2,300 evangelical leaders from 150 countries gathered in Lausanne, Switzerland, to participate in the first international congress on world evangelization. From that congress emerged the Lausanne Covenant, with John Stott as its chief architect. It's a spectacular document. I would recommend that you read it. And if you do, you will read the following words from its sixth section. We affirm that Christ sends his redeemed people into the world as the Father sent him. And that this calls for a similar deep and costly penetration of the world. We need to break out of our ecclesiastical ghettos and permeate non-Christian society. In the church's mission of sacrificial service, evangelism is primary. World evangelization requires the whole church to take the whole gospel to the whole world. And this morning, I want to focus on three words of this quotation. The whole church. Christ sends all of his redeemed people into the world, not just the missionaries. In in order to substantiate this idea, I want to take you to what I think is a highly overlooked passage in the book of Acts. As you know, the full title for Acts is what? The Acts of the Apostles. And it's not hard to understand why. The book is dominated primarily by Peter, who is the focus for much of Acts 1 through 11, and then Paul, who is the focus for much of Acts 13 through 28. And yet, tucked in between these two halves of the book is a curious and brief passage. It's Acts 11, verses 19 through 26. And in it, we will see what I am calling the acts of the non-apostles. The surprising role of so-called ordinary believers we will consider this passage in three scenes but before we do let me just pray again father we're so thankful to be a part of your great mission in the world to have your holy word and to be filled with your Holy Spirit. So I pray this morning that you would challenge us and inspire us and encourage us by your word. May your spirit do his work among us this morning. And would the name of Jesus be lifted up and glorified. We ask in his name. Amen. Okay. Let's look at the first scene, verses 19 through 21. The birth of missions. Next. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So let's first rewind the story a bit to catch the context. You will remember that back in chapter 1, Jesus declared to his apostles... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It was primarily Peter and John and the other apostles who were the leading witnesses in Jerusalem. But who were the pioneers who took the gospel to Judea? and Samaria. Was it the apostles? In Acts chapter 7, we read the recorded speech of Stephen, who was not an apostle, bearing witness before the high priest and the Jewish council in Jerusalem. His speech so enraged the Jewish leaders that they stoned him to death. And then we read this. And Saul approved of his that Stephen's execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and proclaimed to them the Christ. So. Who was scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria? Who went about preaching the word and proclaiming Christ? Was it the apostles? No. It seems as if it was everyone except the apostles. It was the so-called ordinary believers who were doing the pioneering work of evangelism, carrying the gospel into new territories. And then the text names just one of them, Philip. Was he an apostle? No. And yet God entrusted the task to him to proclaim Christ in Samaria. Then we read this, sorry, in Acts 8.14, Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. So in this case, the apostles are following up on the pioneering work done by non-apostles, including Philip. We then read about Philip explaining the scriptures to the Ethiopian eunuch, who is returning to his homeland from Jerusalem. I think it is implied that after believing the good news about Jesus and being baptized, if anyone first spread the gospel to Ethiopia, it wasn't an apostle, but rather a brand-new convert, a so-called ordinary believer. Acts 8 then ends in this way. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is penetrating a number of new towns. And again, it wasn't an apostle doing the work. It was a non-apostle. Then beginning in chapter 9, we read that Paul is hunting for believers in Damascus, the first time the city is mentioned in the book of Acts. However, as you know, Paul is confronted by the Lord Jesus, actually Saul is, before he arrives there. And then verse 10 tells us that there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias who laid his hands on Paul so that his sight might be restored by Jesus. I hope this is sounding familiar. Then in verse 19, the text mentions rather matter-of-factly, for some days he, that is Paul, was with the disciples at Damascus. Have you ever asked yourself, where did these disciples in Damascus come from? How did Ananias first believe? The text does not say, but I think it is highly unlikely that all of the disciples in Damascus were only transplants from Jerusalem. I think it is much more likely that at least some of them became believers in Damascus when they heard the word proclaimed there. Yet we know with near certainty that if anyone did believe in Damascus, it wasn't because of the witness of the apostles. Because later in chapter 9, it says very clearly that Barnabas brought Paul to the apostles who were still in Jerusalem. So if any pioneering evangelistic work was done in Damascus, it was the ministry of unnamed Ordinary believers. So, I want to show you a map of the early movement of the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the road to Gaza to Ethiopia to Azotus, all the way to Caesarea, and even as far north as Damascus. And who is driving the spread of God's kingdom? not the apostles, not even once. It was the work of so-called ordinary believers, including Philip, the non-apostle. Now, it is true that Peter is the first one to preach directly to non-Jews, Cornelius and his household, Yet it seems as if Cornelius is already connected to a Jewish synagogue as a god because he is well known to the Jews in Caesarea. And you know the story. Peter preaches the good news about Jesus, and these non-Jews believe and receive the Holy Spirit without being circumcised, which prompts the circumcision party within Jerusalem to criticize Peter. What is intriguing is that after this incident, the book of Acts never mentions Peter preaching to Gentiles again. So it's as if Peter's witness to Cornelius establishes what you might call a proof of concept or an important historical precedent. Yet this event does not launch a deliberate and systematic mission to the Gentiles, at least not one mentioned in Acts. So with all of that context in mind, let's return back to Acts chapter 11, verse 19. Let me read it again. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch speaking the word to no one except Jews. We rightly concentrate on this last phrase, to no one except Jews, but don't miss the fact that unnamed, so-called ordinary believers are pushing the geographic boundaries of the kingdom again, speaking the word as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. This is significant. The gospel is crossing oceans and moving into new provinces through non-apostles. Then we read in verse 20 that men of Cyprus and Cyrene, and Cyrene was a city in what we would call Libya, North Africa, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, not men of Jerusalem, came to Antioch, And spoke to the Hellenists also. Now, the contrast between verse 20 and verse 19 indicates that these Hellenists are not Jews. But why does Luke use the term Hellenists, which basically means Greek speakers, a term that was applied to Greek speaking Jews back in chapter 6? I think the reason is that Luke is emphasizing that the gospel is now penetrating a new culture, the Greek culture, that is represented by the Greek language. Antioch, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, was the third largest city in the Roman Empire, behind Alexandria and Rome itself. It was a major center of trade and was populated by a number of ethnic groups, including Jews, Greeks, Romans, and even Orientals from Persia, India, and even China. Antioch was an extremely cosmopolitan city, but all the people there were connected by Greek, the language of trade. So Luke claims that unnamed, ordinary believers were the first ones to undertake a concerted and sustained effort to proclaim Christ to the Gentiles. Gentiles who may or may not have been connected to the Jewish synagogue. And in that sense, they are the very first cross-cultural missionaries in history. And one more time, let me emphasize, these are not apostles. Yet verse 21 tells us why they enjoyed the ministry success that they did. The hand of the Lord was with them. Therefore, by the mighty power of God, a great Number who believed turned to the Lord. So I want to show you another map updating the movement of the gospel that is narrated in Acts 11. And once again, it is always and only non-apostles, ordinary men and women filled with the extraordinary Spirit of God, who are proclaiming Christ and pushing the boundaries of God's kingdom. Let's move to the second scene, Acts 11, verses 22 through 24, which I am labeling an apostolic thumbs up. Let's read this. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord." Verse 22 follows a pattern that has already been established in Acts. When the gospel was received in Samaria, the Jerusalem church sent Peter and John. When Peter entered the house of Cornelius the Gentile, ate with him, and preached the gospel, the church in Jerusalem, especially the circumcision party, wanted to inquire what had happened. Thus, it seems to me that when the report reached Jerusalem of a great number of Gentiles coming to faith in Antioch, many of whom probably weren't even God-fearers, the church in Jerusalem naturally wanted to investigate what was going on. I think it likely that there was a mixed reaction to this report in Jerusalem. Some were probably excited by the news, Some may have been skeptical. Most were probably curious. In the providence of God, Barnabas may have been the perfect representative to send to Antioch at this key turning point in the history of the early church. We learn in chapter 4 that the name Barnabas means what? Yes, son of encouragement. And true to his name, verse 23 gives a textbook example of encouragement in action. Notice first that Barnabas sees the grace of God. Seeing the grace of God in what were probably chaotic and messy circumstances requires eyes of faith. This is the necessary first step leading to godly encouragement. Then, seeing the grace of God makes Barnabas glad. If you have the discernment to see the evidence of the grace of God, but do not rejoice in it, you will not encourage other people. Then finally, the third step is the actual words or exhortation, that should be the overflow of joy in the grace of God. If Barnabas could not see God's grace at work in Antioch, but only the problems that were there, then he would not have encouraged the believers there. Or if he saw God's grace, but it made him jealous or insecure, then it would not lead to encouragement. Finally, it could have been possible for Barnabas to see God's grace and rejoice, but just keep that joy to himself, and others would not have been encouraged. So, as a quick word of application, ask yourself Do I excel in a ministry of encouragement as Barnabas did? Do I have eyes to look for the grace of God in every situation? When I see God at work in other believers, does that threaten me or make me happy? And then do I actually take this step of saying something to encourage another person when I see God's grace? Spiritual words of encouragement are not fundamentally expressed as, good job, you're doing well, but rather, hey, I see God at work in your life, thereby giving the glory to God and not to us. The first half of verse 24, then, is a curious addition, I think. It tells us the reason that Barnabas exhorted them was that he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Why does Luke add this detail? The way that I interpret it is that if Barnabas was not a good man, or if he was not speaking from the fullness of the Holy Spirit and from faith, then he might have been critical in what he said to the believers there. And this probably would have been easy to do. I am sure that Barnabas could have found things in Antioch to criticize if he wanted to. After all, pioneering missions work is often a sloppy business. Mistakes are made. And new believers coming out of a pagan background would have provided a lot of fodder for a critique. Yet Barnabas, sort of like Jonathan Edwards in the midst of the Great Awakening in New England, still chose to focus on the positive, the evidence of God's grace that he could see. And I believe that should be our primary posture, too. We should not be blind to the faults and deficiencies of other believers, but our default reaction should be to encourage each other whenever we can. Then the second half of verse 24 tells us the result of Barnabas's encouragement. A great many people were added to the Lord. His encouragement was like adding gasoline to the fire of the Spirit's work. Just made it grow even bigger. Yet when verse 23 tells us that Barnabas exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose... This suggests to me that Barnabas' basic message to them was, keep doing what you're doing. In other words, he was encouraging them to continue their work of reaching out to the Gentiles with the gospel. So even when Barnabas arrived on the scene, it was the so-called ordinary believers who continued to proclaim Christ to those who had never heard. Finally, going to go to the third scene in this passage, verses 25 through 26, Paul the non pioneer. Let's read these verses. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, also called Paul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And we have three brief comments to make on these two verses. First, Notice that even though Barnabas approved of what the believers were in Antioch were doing, he still searched for Paul and brought him to Antioch. This suggests that Barnabas recognized that the church in Antioch, which was growing very quickly, could benefit from Paul's teaching to strengthen, deepen, and solidify the new faith of the church. Second, the text does not mention that Paul engaged in speaking the word to the Gentiles in Antioch. It only tells us about his teaching ministry among believers. At the least, this suggests to me that Paul did not take over the evangelistic ministry of the church or replace the witness of the ordinary believers. Rather, it seems as if they continued their evangelistic and pioneering work under the instruction and encouragement of Paul and Barnabas. Third, consider the last sentence of this passage. Commentators are quick to point out that the term Christians Was not a self designation. It is not what the believers called themselves, but rather it was a nickname that was given to them. It may have meant something like Jesus groupies in today's language. One thing I find significant is that this term of derision was applied to all the disciples not just specifically Paul and Barnabas. Why would the citizens of Antioch call all the disciples Christians? Well, probably because all the disciples were proclaiming Christ, publicly and vocally associating themselves with Christ. This again suggests that all believers... Whether apostles or not, viewed it as their responsibility to talk to unbelievers about Jesus. Now, some of you may be thinking, well, yes, maybe up until this point, Paul did not do any cross-cultural missions, but he virtually did all of the pioneering work for the early church after he started his missionary journeys. And actually, that is not true either. In Acts chapter 13, Paul preaches in Antioch of Pisidia. It's a different Antioch than is mentioned in chapter 11. And when Jews there become jealous and begin to contradict Paul, he declares in a pivotal moment that he is turning to the Gentiles. Remember this? then we read this. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. So, Wait a minute, the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region? How is that happening? It must have been by the mouths of unnamed ordinary believers, filled with the Holy Spirit and with joy, right? They are the ones through whom the word is radiating outward from Antioch, of Pisidia. And consider this also, in Acts chapter 18, Paul meets Aquila and Priscilla in Corinth. They have recently come from Rome because Claudius expelled the Jews from that city. The text gives every indication that they are already believers. But how did they come to faith? I would argue that from Acts chapter 19, verse 21 onward, when Paul resolves in his spirit to go to Rome, the next nine chapters of the book of Acts are filled with dramatic tension as Paul is facing opposition, imprisonments, plots on his life, a shipwreck being bitten by a snake, and even believers are urging him not to go there. But God stands by him and assures him, You must testify also in Rome. So, what happens after years of travel when Paul finally reaches the imperial capital of the ancient world at the climax of the book of Acts? We read this putting in at Syracuse, we stay there for three days. And from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day a south wind sprang up and on the second day we came to, to Petulio, uh, Petali, I don't know how to pronounce that word. But it is a, it's a port city about 150 miles down the coast from Rome. Considerable distance. And it says, and there we found what? Brothers. And we were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. You see, even though Paul is reaching Rome for the first time, the gospel beat him there years ago. The word of the Lord has been spreading through non-apostles, through the so-called ordinary believers and their witness penetrating the very heart of the Roman Empire by their bold testimony. And when Paul sees the warm welcome he is receiving, he thanks God and takes courage. Why? I think because he knows that the hand of the Lord is with him, just as it is with those who have already been preaching in Rome. Jesus' promise in chapter 1 that his witnesses will reach the ends of the earth is being fulfilled and it has been the whole church that is doing it. So looping back to our text for this morning, Acts 11, 19-26, let me ask you, Why would Luke include this curious episode in the middle of his book? Why would he choose to narrate this story? In the American Evangelical Church, I wonder if we have overdrawn the distinction between goers and senders in the church's mission. You've heard of this distinction, right? Some are called to go, and the rest are called to send them. There is, of course, biblical warrant for this kind of language. In the book of 3 John, we read this. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Betsy and I are certainly very thankful that Bethel has sent us to Indonesia And we feel that you have done so in a manner worthy of God. However, remember that throughout the book of Acts, it was not the apostles who were primarily doing the pioneering work. Neither was it those who were deliberately sent out by local churches for the sake of the name, such as Paul's co-workers, Rather, the gospel mainly advanced because of ordinary believers who were telling the people around them about Jesus. They were speaking the word with boldness. And this is exactly what we are seeing happening in Indonesia today. The bulk of the pioneering work is not being done by the foreign missionaries. I think we have a crucial role to play, but we are mostly encouraging, training, supporting, funding, and connecting indigenous Indonesian church planters. And truth be told though I consider the Indonesian church planters with which our team partners to be real heroes of the faith, it is not primarily these church planters either who are doing most of the frontline gospel work. It's not. Rather, it's an unnamed but vast army of business people, students, housewives, farmers, and fishermen. Ordinary believers filled with an extraordinary spirit who are telling family, friends, co-workers, and strangers around them about Jesus. It is these who are most often pushing the gospel into new territories and advancing the kingdom. And isn't that just like our God, brothers and sisters? To use the foolish, the weak, the low, and overlooked in the world's eyes to accomplish His purposes so that no one might boast if the 166 million unreached in Indonesia are going to hear the gospel, it will not primarily be because of the handful of foreign missionaries. It will rather be because of the hand of the Lord, which is with ordinary Indonesian believers who proclaim the Lord Jesus Yes, as a missionary, I have a role to play. But I believe that what is required is for the whole church to take the whole gospel to the whole of Indonesia and to the whole world. And in Wilmington, like in ancient Antioch, the nations are gathering. They're coming here. And Bethel has a part to play in their evangelization, not only in praying and supporting workers to reach them, but in speaking to them, ourselves. If the gospel is going to advance in this city and among the nations, I believe that it is not going to be primarily through Christian vocational workers, it will be all of us, the whole church, working together and speaking boldly. Yes, you may feel intimidated in sharing the gospel with those around you, but friends, can we just talk to people about Jesus? Can we bear witness to what He has done in our lives? Do we not have the same Spirit that dwelled in Peter and Paul? Do we not have the same message of salvation that they did? I want to leave you with a line that summarizes the thrust of my message this morning and hopefully it will be memorable. The goers are not enough. That is, the foreign sent missionaries cannot complete the task by themselves. So the senders must also become speakers. Let's pray. Father, there are no ordinary believers. Those of us who have believed in your Son, Jesus Christ, have been filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And we have heard and understood and received the gospel of truth. So we have both the Spirit and the gospel already. And I pray, Lord, that you would stir up the whole church, all of your people, to be sent into this world as the Father sent the Son. Father, we are all meant to be speakers of the good news, whether we stay in Wilmington, whether our jobs take us to other places, whether we are sent out to the remote parts of this world. We all have a part to play. God, and I pray that you would use even this local church to be pushing out the boundaries of the gospel through bold witness and testimony for your name's sake. Amen.